Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 10. We're into double digits. Thank you for your continued listenership. It means the world to me. What a special episode I have for you today. A conversation with one of the most renowned choreographers in the world, Deborah Brown, who was with Cirque du Soleil for three decades. Not only is she a creative force, she has become a good friend over the years, and I jumped at the opportunity to bring her on the show and talk about the creative process, and in particular, to ask her about risk-taking and how to keep the flame alive in our lives. One of the central challenges in life involves taking risks, leaving jobs, moving countries, starting new educational opportunities, or in Deborah's case, working with the world's top circus artists and dancers and helping create spectacles that dazzle the human heart and mind. The notion of dying in the creative process, leaving our old selves behind, relinquishing control, has always been close to my heart. It doesn't simply occur in creativity, though. It is a central metaphor and reality in our lives. We must practice dying over and over again to prepare ourselves for the real thing. What a treat, then, for Deborah to open up about how this has functioned in her own creative process. To know Deborah is to be in the presence of someone who floats. As you'll hear in today's interview, she has a grace about her when it comes to human development, friendship, and risk-taking that is soft, direct, and useful. Many of us need someone in our lives to say yes, to champion us when we are on the edge of something that makes us vulnerable, where we cannot see where it will lead us. And as you'll hear today, Deborah has been that guiding angel for thousands of artists around the world, never mind the friends and colleagues that have crossed her path. You'll also hear that Deborah has rescued hundreds of animals from around the globe and brought them to safety on her beautiful farm in Ontario, Canada, so her love knows no bounds. On that note, I am touched by all of your support, and I want to give a particular mention to Alan Rosenbluth, who recently supported the podcast financially. If you are inclined to do the same, please head on over to mitchellsmolkin.com, where there is a link to donate at the bottom of the page. This remains a labor of love for me, and your contributions are especially meaningful. Lastly, please do not forget to subscribe and rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way to get the word out, so please take two minutes to do so if you haven't already. Now, on with the show. Well, I have the delight and good fortune of getting an hour of Miss Deborah Brown's time on a Friday. Although you'll be hearing this, a lot of you, on Tuesday. <laughs> What's amazing, given that in some ways you and I share passions of music, 
theater or circus, which you've certainly had a lot more experience than me, is how we met before telling everyone all the, well, I can't even get through a, a, an iota of all the special parts about you in this podcast. But before I share with them a little bit, I just want to share how you and I met. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. <laughs> so it was an evening in Huntsville, Ontario at Deerhurst Resort. And I think we both felt compelled to go look at this sunset that was taking place out in front of the resort. And I don't remember a lot of people around. I remember you and I standing kind of by the entrance. And I think I was taking a picture and you came to me and you said, hey, my batteries died. Would you mind taking a picture of the sunset and texting me? I'll give you my number. <laughs> and I was like, sure. And I, and I um, took the picture of the sunset and... We started talking and we went back inside. I think we had a glass of wine and we spoke for at least a couple of hours, if not longer. And I remember you were telling me about, you were like, oh, I'm off to Monaco. I'm going to Mexico. And I was like, oh, she's delusional. <laughs> I was like, who is this woman? <laughs> I was like, because it was just the Prince of Monaco. You know, it's not every day that you you sit down with someone and they're talking about the Prince of Monaco, where I'll be with Gabe actually this summer a bit later on. And then we watched videos of like, of animal whispers. You showed me a video of this woman that could like, she healed this traumatized, well, I don't remember what it was, what, what kind of animal it was, a tiger or a? A black panther. A black panther. I believe, yes. And a back and brick or, I can't remember what that's Something like that. Yes. So this was my introduction to to the absolute delight, uniqueness, and joy of your world. And my parents even came to the lobby around like one in the morning and they were like, who's Mitch sitting with? <laughs> and in the morning, I Googled you because I was like, who did I have uh, wine with last night? And there you were having won an Emmy for your work at the Academy Awards. And it turns out that you've had this amazing, illustrious career, three decades, I think, with, with Cirque du Soleil. You've worked with Aerosmith, with Pavarotti, with Celine Dion, with Bjork, with Hugh Jackman, Shakira, you name it. You've been around the world and back, and everywhere you go, you bring back animals that you give love to and find homes for. And you're just this incredibly special person that I thank myself every day that we cross paths and you float. So I am really happy to have you here and to talk about, well, talk about the dignity of suffering, I think, from an artistic perspective, from the artistic process. But thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you, Mitch. It's a pleasure to be here. What a nice introduction. Thank you. And I have to say about our first meeting, I felt like I had known you all my life. Oh. Yes. And I enjoyed myself immensely. It's like meeting an old friend. The doors were all open immediately. <laughs> and I'm so thankful that my phone battery was dead. And you're in saint anne de lac right now, north of yeah. Montreal, uh, on a beautiful lake that I have swum in and paddled on. And I'm in Stockholm. And through the magic of technology, we can smile with each other. And I'm sure many people listening, before we get into anything else, and I'm sure you've been asked this many times, but I would love to hear what was going on in your life and how did you get involved with Cirque? How did that come across your plate and what did you have instincts that it would be as big as it was mm. you know my whole career it was never more than one step at a time never ever and to land in the success of Cirque when it happened that was a spontaneous well for me I had no idea and it was amazing and it took a while to adjust to but it's funny because I've been thinking about this with COVID, the period of COVID, and realizing that movement for me saved my life because in our family, we didn't really have the best verbal communication skills. And so 
movement for me was a way to identify and pinpoint exactly the emotion that I couldn't find with words. And I would, you know, through my life, I've met writers who have written what it is that I do. And I'm so thankful that they mm. put it into words mm. because I didn't have those words. And so that's sure. movement has always been the mainstay. I was a gymnast. Then I became a dancer. I studied dance. I competed in gymnastics for 13 years. And then I moved to Vancouver where I trained gymnasts for eight years. And they were all on national and international teams in the Olympics. And we really developed a style, a movement style that people noticed worldwide. And I felt like I had explored the art form of the sport as much as I needed. And the friend told me, well, you know this no animal circus is coming to town why don't you check them out and I just happened I forgot that she said that I just happened to ride my bike by the children's festival and I saw the tent I thought oh this must be what she's talking about so I went over locked my bike up and it was intermission so I snuck under the big top and I saw the second half which was two hours long and I thought wow they're doing the same thing that I'm doing in gymnastics, only in circus. But the second half is two hours long. They need a choreographer. So arrogantly, I thought to myself. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, the next day, I they were all the individual performers were at Canada Place. And I went and talked to them and said, you know, I'd love to work with you. But what it really was, I met a clown at Expo that year, part of La Ratatouille, one of the original clown, clown groups of Cirque du Soleil. Well, they weren't of Cirque du Soleil, but they had hired them. They were their own entity. And Michel Dollar, and we had an affair that summer. And it was a wonderful friendship. And he said, you know, you should work with circus. He says, I said that I planned on it. So he went back and talked to the director. It just so happens that the next year they were going to L.A. to open up the L.A. Festival of the Arts. And they decided that they wanted to add a choreographer to the team. So Michelle told Guy that he met this woman, which was myself, and Andre Samard, who was a men's national coach, was sharing the same office as Guy. He was living in Montreal, and he I've done work with the men's national team. He said, I know her. So I got the job. It was all like that. Yes, serendipitous, right? It just sort of... Serendipitous, yeah. yeah. You know, and then arriving, I... The creation was all in French, and I had studied French in high school, but I hadn't spoke French for like, I don't know, probably eight years, 10 years. And yeah, so Franco and I, we would watch each other because he would give long lectures and I would pretend to be very focused, but I hadn't a clue what was going on. But I would watch him and we would show each other movements. So we spoke. Right from the beginning, our relationship developed with nonverbal vocabulary. Yes. And when I look back on that, I think that there's a trust that develops and an intuition that is tuned because you can't place it on words. It can Do you be know um, Eugenio Barba's book, The Paper Canoe? Oh, I know Eugenio Barba. But I'm I sure you do. Yes. The Paper Canoe, I'll write that down. Well, that was his book. I don't know him, but he he wrote about, I think, going to England when he didn't know any English. Oh, yes. And he, and he writes, I, I believe he writes, but that was the start of his deep interest in physicality because, because he didn't speak the language. He just watched people's bodies. He just was like, he had to focus on their physicality for communication. And it was this incredible awakening for him of how powerful uh, that is. Wow. And actually, as a, as a therapist, and we've talked about this together, I am laser focused. Like one of my eyes is always on the person's body. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's so subtle and so incredible and so touching. I mean, I love what you just said earlier about not having the words, but having movement. I am always surprised, 
I'll just see someone's, I'm sure I've said this before, but like, I'll just see their cheeks start to just like the skin just goes from being taut to, to softening, to melting. And, and I know that something's emotional for them. Wow. Anyway, we can talk more about that. Did you know it was something special? Did you have any instinct when you joined that what you were joining was going to blossom into the largest circus company in the world? I had no idea. <laughs> None. But I, I loved every minute of it. I loved all the artists and I did a good job for them. But when I was hired, I was hired for six weeks. Well, I was, yes, I, they auditioned me because they were going to the festival in January with a bicycle act. So I helped them with the choreography of the bicycle act. That was my audition. And the bicycle coach, Monsieur Velo, we call him Luke Tremblay, he said, yeah, we like her. So it was a six-week job. And then I went back to Vancouver, never thinking about Cirque again or thinking that I would be hired again. And then they called me for the opening in LA to come down for the week to work with the artists. And then they invited me to come to Montreal to work. And then I started to follow the tour regularly and help them. What was the most transformative experience that oh. you've had with an artist? Oh. What, what comes to mind of a moment that you, like something changed for you? Oh my God, something changed the moment. Well, you know, that's a big question because I have so many experiences and there's so many that I could relate to because every cirque that we did together with Franco was like a death. On the premiere, he used to say another birth, another death. And the minute that he said that, I realized it's okay to let go. We're not alone because it so spontaneous the creation and so in the moment and so intuitive and tapping into everyone's truth mm. and not being afraid to turn right if we were turning left so by the end we were all so invested emotionally every single person under the big top but that was everyone was a profoundly different experience but the one that comes to mind is you asked me that I was a dancer in a choreographic seminar once. Robert Cohen from the London Contemporary Dance used to organize with Grant Stratty these choreographic seminars where they would bring six choreographers together, six musicians and dancers. And every day they had a task and they had three hours to work on the task. And then it was performance and discussion every night. And hers was a slow motion dance and I was not to be on stage. I was to be in the audience in the middle of the intense slow motion. She gave me an apple and she said, I want you to bite in the apple and talk to the audience. <laughs> and can you imagine? I was so stressed. She gave me the challenge to use my words. Ah. I stressed about that. And I did. I bit on the apple and took everyone's focus to me, angrily so, because <laughs> they didn't know I was part of the show. But I had to resolve that and speak to the audience, not knowing what I was going to talk about. I ended up talking about a dream that I had a few nights prior to that. But it totally, it was a piece, it was a project about make time stand still. So that's a moment, but that that's that's an artistic puzzle. Of course. How are you feeling about talking today? I know this is many years ago that you talk about language, but did that go away, the worry about communication through language? Or do you still carry that sometimes? Is there still a feeling of finding your words or is that long gone? I think that what just in the past year, I've realized how reflecting back on all the situations, how I wasn't able to articulate with words and sometimes it didn't help the process. But 
had I been aware of my own strengths and weaknesses to the depth that, you know, COVID has given me a chance to reflect, that has been a gift. And just understanding where I have lived all those years in the creation and thinking Mm -hmm. about, because there were many, many, many difficult moments. And like anything that you put your passion to, it's work, it's death and rebirth and death and rebirth. And I have to say, I've died so many times and I got to be quite good at rebirthing. (laughs) as time went on i'm glad you came back to that because i was going to want to talk more about that i hear you now reflecting on that and the cycles of death and rebirth and certainly that factors a lot into my work i think that a lot of the time what i am doing with people is a kind of meditation on mortality Because so much of what we experience in our daily life, disappointments, what did someone say, you know, tell God your plans and he'll cry with you or she'll cry with you, you know. And I have to imagine when you referenced earlier in the beginning that it it, it sounds like it was a learning experience of, of, of eventually realizing that you were free to kind of allow things to be on the edge of falling apart and not knowing. I mean, I'm hearing you talk about it now with perspective, but I imagine that there must have been a, a learning process of kind of being on the edge for a while and having to grow into that level of comfort of things, you know, being on the edge of falling apart. Well, one thing I was always on the edge. That's the one thing that I, I was all not afraid to risk. From the not beginning. Af- no, and I'm uh-huh. still not afraid mm. to risk on the dance floor, so to speak. That we can get into later. But when you do, and that was a wonderful thing about meeting Franco, because that venture out on the edge, I was not afraid to do something that no one has ever done. In fact, that was necessary. Necessary for me. I would have this dream in my head that motivated me every creation what if we just do something simple and it touches the audience can we bring a tear to their eye can we touch their heart it doesn't have to be a trick what is it i was always looking for that something that that which is invisible that moved them that had nothing to do with the athleticism of it and i think it goes back to my own what saved my life and how i could express myself but that was risky, which became more difficult to do later in the circus after Franco left. It wasn't understood as well. And I thank Franco for understanding and giving that freedom. We would completely turn right and change the show. Mm -hmm. If something on stage that we improvised said yes, like Franco said, each day we come with our pants down each day but you know to go to the edge you have to be well supported you have to have an ally Mm. or you can be isolated creatively i referenced that when i talked to gabor mate i mentioned that one of the first things i heard him talk about was the circle of kin and oh yeah the, the more that are around us the more safe we feel. And and I remember when I was working in the emergency room, there was this very strange policy, which was that people that came in who were often quite alone and alienated from their communities, quite addicted very often to alcohol or drugs, they couldn't get counseling until they went to rehab and got off the alcohol or drugs. And I found this so bizarre. I mean, I realized that we we only had so many resources, but I kept saying to myself, how do you expect somebody who's alone, alienated, relying on something to help them feel safe? How do you expect them to take an emotional risk if they don't have any support? Not that that was a panacea, but, uh, and, and maybe we're talking about different things here, but I just, when you said that, it reminded me that you know, to take a risk you have to have an ally. It helps to have people around you to just 
have a bit of an emotional net, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Yes. That it's interesting that I say that because I've never said that until just now. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what Franco was for me, an ally who, you know, understood and was not afraid because of where I would play. Mm-hmm. Because the artist didn't always understand until a certain point. And then when we would break through the boundaries and we would come out with a birth of something that has never been, that is completely original, then the flow starts, but it's like chipping away at ice sometimes. And because I didn't have the words to help steer the artists, sometimes he would be very supportive and support that and just help put them in the right mind frame to come with me because I'm already in the vision. It's like a little vision. I want to go. I'm <laughs> so used to. I use hypnotism to work with people. It's almost like all of this is because of trauma, you know, that I experienced probably when I listened to Gabor and you know, the wisdom of trauma and listen to see it. It's interesting. I've been reflecting on that. What, what's well, that for you? I mean, I know you ha- I know you got into an, an accident, but that was later, no? Or is that part of the story? Yeah. Well, I think the trauma comes from the family life. It comes from family. And if I remember, my parents were not happy with one another. They were not fulfilled, nor did they have the tools to communicate what made them unhappy so there was a lot of arguments my father was an only child and he was quiet and my mother was a vibrant French Irish woman you know with a lot of dreams she got a pilot's license at 45 and she came from a very poor family a family of seven children that worked on a tobacco farm they had a tobacco farm so there was conflict so I would escape so I spent my life escaping you could say escaping but I tend to you know if I you could look at it two ways right now in my life that I ran away and just danced my whole life but I'm so happy Mm. I love where I traveled Mm. in this life you know what, Deborah? It, it has become so clear in my mind. Almost every day now when I work with someone, and even when I sit here with you, we, we do talk a lot about trauma and your instincts about your parents make sense. The fact that we don't receive a kind of mediation through language or understanding, and so we carry something with us. On the other hand, I can't help but frame it in the way that we all develop these superpowers, you know, like we all, almost like we put on these capes at some point. And and Alfred Adler says this about how like we get this free training when we're younger, you know, that we get this training to become (laughs) something and that we go into the world with this chiseled sort of aspect of our personality and it, it can do amazing things, whether it's going into your body and and working with other artists and sharing that or you know people must become great lawyers because they had to sort of be at home and and determine what was safe and not safe and kind of analyze situations or i know for me of course and i've been open about it the loss in the in the holocaust and kind of that emotionality that i think has served me well and i'm a little bit tired of this kind of implicit idea that, you know, we all just better get to it and kind of work on ourselves and fix these parts of us that feel so obsessive and strong. And there's a part of me that's like, well, sure, but isn't this, isn't this what gives us color? And, and I don't want to minimize the, the suffering that many people go through and not being able to experience relationship, but God, you know, look at what you've done with that impetus and what you've shared and you know, I'll go so far as to say, you know, when Robin Williams died, and I think maybe I mentioned this in my last podcast, I don't remember, but there was all this talk of, oh, now we have to talk about mental health. And of course we do. But look, Robin Williams had access to the best care in the world. 
the most highly paid psychiatrist, therapist in Hollywood, I'm sure, he gave us this incredible joy and comedy that obviously came from an incredible place of pain. And I don't want to minimize it for his family or for what he went through and the anguish, not for a second. I don't want to degrade the process of anguish or assume that we deserve to get his humor because he went through pain. But there is something about the way things shake out in our lives that we become these incarnations of our experience that offer something. And, and in some way, we tend to benefit from it, even in many ways from those that suffer with the 27 Club, right? All these musicians that you know, died at the age of 27. You know, this, this, it's just a phenomenon to me that somehow something about our anguish comes out into the world in an emotional way and we, it, it reverberates around through all of us. And yes, there's the whole mental health side, but there's something I think that we have very little control over, no matter how much we try. Mm-hmm. Something creative emerges And I don't know how to ask this question, except that I'm curious if there's also a moment emotionally that you remember, you know, I trained as a singer and I know the voice is so connected to the body. And I remember years of vocal lessons and the fragility and fear and how that's all connected. But I'm wondering if there's a memory that comes to mind of an emotional moment with an artist you worked with where, I don't know, where something was just coming up for them or that you had to push through or I'm sure there's millions so many moments <laughs> so many thank you for asking but I I think that my strength working with people is to take them to a place they've never been that's one thing that I've heard about our work together a lot and I love I love that place because then we wait, then we're in the moment when we can get to that place where they've never been. People reflect back to you that, that your work with them often results in them going to places they've never been before. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So to get to those moments is very, sometimes very difficult, sometimes very painful. And sometimes I'm once I even had to die, (laughs) I just decided to lay down and die, miss there, because I am so challenged by, this is a different situation, but miss there was probably the most incredible thoroughbreds in that they trained in Chinese poles, they they trained in Katari Taiko, all the athletes, I was their dance teacher, lots of strong men on that show, Warrior Men, boom. Here I was with my little voice out in front, trying to map out this really big stage and they would challenge me. And I'd have to find a way to get them to follow me mm-hmm. so they wouldn't create conflict. So I had to, I just died. I decided to die on stage. I didn't know. You know, you're often in the moment. You have to keep going somehow. You have to create a great show and you have to, and often we didn't know where we were going exactly, but we knew, you know, when you tap into it. Many times we didn't know where we were going, but we kept the rhythm going. We kept the rhythm going and we kept on moving and we weren't afraid that we didn't know. So you lay down, you lay down, you could tell that you were being challenged, that you you had to find some way to circumvent the the conflict and the interpersonal dynamic that was forming. Yeah, especially with the men, lots of strong men. And they challenged What were they saying? What were they saying to you? Well, you know, they were distracted by having fun, talking amongst each other and uh, not because I love to have fun. So I have to be Uh careful because it's a moment when we have to focus. Sure. And they were being, I would say, well, you know, it was a battle. There was a lot of strong men. Sure. 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 Everybody was like a thoroughbred on that show. The training was so yeah, I, just, I saw it. I saw the show. Yeah, these big, strong 
men. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, at one moment during Chinese polls, when all the artists are on stage, I just went to the middle of the stage and I said, I'm dead. You have killed me. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do, but it worked. And then from that moment on, we were together. But there's always something that you have to prove or to convince them to travel with you or can we travel here together you know it's like a quest you have to go through challenges it's not without challenges what do you think happened in them when you lay down and die like what <laughs> well it was really funny because i'll never forget everybody came around me and they had the sweetest smile on their face, like a baby face. Like all of a sudden, the room transformed. <laughs> and I'll remember a lot of the men, the real competitive men. Like these, are com they were fresh out of gymnastics, a lot of them, you know, so really strong. And they were this soft baby face. That's what I remember. And then when I stood up, we, we just kept moving and we were all going towards, boom, this. And I could take them where... I felt like we needed to go as their leader. But there was many moments like that with individuals. You know, many moments with individuals. Each individual has a different capacity to dive deeper within themselves. Some people are not ready to go as deep as others. And you, you have to, you have to try to find the best way yeah, to meet them where they're at. Yes, to meet yeah. them where they're at and to keep finding the full potential of them was what the, seemed to be the Bible in those Franco years where we were together. And you That's think of it, circus is born on the street. It comes from the street. It comes from the hum, humble gypsy life. And if you did not entertain, you would not eat that night. So there's always a direct relationship with the audience to communicate, to communicate, to share, to move them. That's what I feel so privileged to have been part of that process. There was not one day that wasn't full of heartfelt engagement. And that was a rule every day wasn't about making the show it was about going and totally engaging yourself and everybody not everybody technicians everybody you can hear deborah's enthusiasm at aiming to reach the full potential of everyone she worked with what a thrilling experience it must have been to engage on such a profound level with so many of those artists. And her story about dying in front of all of these testosterone-laden, horseback-riding gymnasts was, well, to die for. <laughs> I wanted to take a break to let you know that you too can experience the magic of Deborah's presence as her and I are teaming up together to offer you the inaugural Dignity of Suffering Summit, a five-day exploration in Stockholm, Sweden, of the body, the voice, and the word. With world-renowned instrumentalists Cesar Lerner and Marcello Mogolevsky, join us in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. I know that I cannot wait to show you some of the treasures this place has to offer. Information will be forthcoming on my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, but our tentative dates are October 9th to 13th, 2021. Please do not forget to subscribe and rate and review the podcast on Apple. All of these things go a long way to getting the word out. And as always, your support is really appreciated. Now, back to my interview with the great Deborah Brown. No, the arts really, they hold that space in between, don't they? That liminal space. 
it's not always easy to watch mm -hmm. profound pieces of art, of course. I mean, historically, it was meant to provoke. I think we've lost a bit of that tradition, you know, Brecht's tradition of trying to provoke people into passion or, or of course, when it was a civic duty. And I was speaking to my good friend Alun Nashman yesterday, who's going to join us in Stockholm at our Dignity of Suffering Summit. He'll be the ambassador of the word, and we'll talk about that in a second. But we were talking, and I was talking about how many artists are a bit lost right now, given the pandemic, not having been able to practice their craft, especially those that relied on weekly paychecks to survive. And Alun said that you know the pandemic in many ways made him realize how insignificant the arts can be to society. <laughs> and I'm just wondering what that's been like for you, what, what you've heard. I know for you, it's been a time to dance and, and explore and certainly sort of narrow a bit in terms of the busy life that you had. But I'm curious what you've heard or what it's been like for you, or even what your feelings are about what he said, how that sits with you. Well, what Alan said about how the arts can be so insignificant at times in the life of I oh, have the to world. Say, yeah. I reflected about that. Like, how can we be so long without the arts? But I'm sure that all the arts were still going on, but behind closed doors. And if it wasn't, I would imagine that there was a lot of despair. I think if I think many people, I would hear many, many artists went off and studied and switched careers. One rigger opened up a little restaurant in Montreal. Another artist went into physiotherapy and is now in school. Many artists have taken the decision to just transition or just to keep on moving and keep the light on in your heart, which was such the challenge during COVID because there's always this air of dampness and wondering, uh, the unknown. The unknown, not knowing if tomorrow something, I mean, I remember many days where you think that you would hear news about people dying and politics and everything that is going on and wonder if there is more to come. You're just teeter-tottering. But, it, and I do believe there were some, some people didn't make it through COVID that sadly maybe left this planet of their mm. own choice. Yes. You know, it's, I was listening to Teach Not Khan mm -hmm. yesterday and he says everyone is going everywhere looking for home. <laughs> home is inside. Home is inside. And that was a gift of COVID for the world. Sure. Should you choose to participate in that? It touches me though that the artist and other jobs are just they're more precarious than others you know there's many many people who spent just as much time and energy and money honing their craft and they could continue practicing their profession perhaps uninterrupted maybe from home you know money coming in so i hear you it certainly was a creative time for me but i i don't know there's a part of me that also resists a little bit this the mystification or the you know that that there there really is a kind of attention a kind of dignity that we have to bring to everybody in our society and culture and I, I don't have any answers for that and certainly there's many that are doing much more uh, you know valiant work than I in that domain but it has touched me to hear people lamenting the loss of their craft for so long. Yes. Cirque basically, I mean, it basically disappeared at the beginning of the pandemic. No, remember it was like February or March and mm -hmm. and it basically stopped. And what, what was that like for you to 
see that or feel that or they had 44 shows on the road i was working on another show that wasn't surf based that was on a ship that we were just about to go to i was going to say sweden we were just about to go to europe to board the ship and finish the creation and that came to a complete halt and i think it was shocking <laughs> for a lot of people many people like especially you know there's some people have their parents that are very supportive that they're young enough and there's some people with families that are maybe perhaps from another country that just purchased houses in Vegas and now there's no one knows if they will have a job so there's all kinds of situations that people had to deal with and I think there's no one solution I think it if anything, COVID, it's like every day you have to you have to tell yourself at the beginning of the day or invite yourself to keep your heart open. Yeah. Move forward. <laughs> yeah, because there's such a fine line between where you want to go. I noticed that for myself, you know. But I can't speak for all of those artists. No, but I was going to ask you that. You you sort of already said it, but I know you as somebody that carries a lot of light within you. I know that when I call you and talk about things that are important, there's there's a way that you channel light into conversations. <laughs> and, and I wonder if there's anything else you would say to artists who may be listening to this who aren't sure once this ends how to how to reintegrate or find, you know, re reinvest in their creative life? Oh, what, what would I say? I would say, keep playing the music, even when you don't feel it. Mm. Keep playing mm. the music, keep, keep your body alive. Keep your body alive, even though your spirit has dropped to the bottom of your feet. Just mm -hmm. go through the motions and keep on moving. You know, it's like that reminds me of Bubba Haridas. He, he uh, was talking to a friend of mine. She was very sick with this rare form of cancer. And he said, you know, she was dying. And he said, you know, every, that, that's the way to do it. One step at a time. He said, sometimes people carry a large lamp and that is just an illusion. Mm. All you need is a small lamp, mm. one step at mm. a time. Amazing. So you choose, and he said, and just keep on moving, keep the light on in your heart and keep on moving one step. And you can choose that step, not knowing what the next steps are. You don't have to know. You really don't. I believe. Yeah, my favorite saying is, is go as far as you can see, and you'll be able to see further. <laughs> ah, exactly. You know, that I was love that, that a little lamp. That's so funny. That's so funny. Because that's like, I think I've lived my life like that. And sometimes I wonder, should I not think about the end portion? And then go, because many people, they have a beginning, a middle and an end. And there's something about myself that I've always been af afraid or reluctant to carve the end. Because what if we find a truth over here mm -hmm. and that truth doesn't take us and then we manipulate the passage. To get there. You know, so just stay true to the moment. And if you don't feel it, just you have to keep your body, you have to keep your health. Like if you... If the spirit goes down, it invites everything else to go down. Yeah. Depression can set in so fast. And then you can start to let the body go. And then you, you don't eat well. And then you have many toxins to deal with. So that, that's one thing that I thought a lot about in the... And I, I I'm very thankful to learn that I can never let go of my body because I'm a completely different person if I don't 
keep my body fit. I'm a completely different spirit, like where I live. There's, and I can't, I, I, I will find my way if I'm honest and physically healthy. And that's all I have to trust. I mean, I've, I've lived my life like that. <laughs> now, as you, you know, know, I've done yoga religiously for, oh, since I did theater school. I mean, I think that was really the real introduction to the body. And, and there's something amazing about a regular routine of showing up on the mat. What's so interesting is it, <laughs> my wife asked me the other day how yoga was, and it was one of those harder days where halfway through, I'm, I'm like, can I make it? And there's some voice inside of me that's like, I know just how important the, like you said, even if the light is dim, committing to a kind of physical practice, there's something just generative about it and important, really important to work through some of these moments where something's pulling at us and you don't know what it is. It doesn't have language. It's in the body and... I don't know. I love that rigor or that practice of of trusting that it will, if you give it space, it will it will work itself out. I don't have to know what is going on. I just need to make room for it to have a home. <laughs> you there you <laughs> go. And you know, like Deepak Chopra said, the body never lies. I never forgot. He came to Montreal and I went to see him. That was maybe like 20 years ago. And I'll never forget that he said that. Mm. The body never lies. Listen to your body. It will always tell you the truth. That is so true. So we're going to create something special together, you and I. We're, we have a little lamp. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we're putting one foot in front of the other. And we're inviting people to Stockholm the second week in October, you can find more information. I'll give you the details before and after the podcast. But you, you're going to bring your light to Stockholm and people are welcome to come here to a place that I have just fallen in love with. It's in Swedish called the Central Bade, which is the Central Bath, which is this century old, it's, it's a spa essentially, but, but in the Swedish way where it's very much connected to everyday life with this gorgeous art deco pool where they light candles and they have it lit and there are, are all this, you know, plants and you're not meant to go there and swim fast. You're actually meant there just to float in these circles. And there's this rooftop. I just discovered it, this whole rooftop that is open with chairs and, and mats and you can work out. And then there's all the Scandinavian, you know, cold pool and hot pools and, crystal saunas and saunas just for women and and a yoga studio <laughs> and, and I'm meeting with them next week and and we're planning to try to bring people to come together get in their bodies and I, I'm just what do you what do you love about working with people in their bodies I think you've already said it but when you imagine having a chance to go into a room and yes well I this, to be in a therapeutic situation is very inspiring to me. And movement for myself has always been therapeutic. And to, to be able to meet with a group of people and to what it is we will do there, we will raise the vibrations of everybody. And that I absolutely love. I absolutely love to be able to share with people and see if we can find what the dance is that we all abandon wherever we were and we just join the ring with the movement. I love to find the playfulness of the present moment. The present. We have to live more moments in the present. Yeah. That's all it is. And if we can do that together, and you were going to say music too. I know how much you love music and oh, how I you and I it. were dancing in your kitchen. And I'm bringing Marcello Mogolevsky and yes. Cesar Lerner from Buenos Aires, who are some of the deepest and most generous musicians I know. And 
They will be with us also to improvise to people's bodies. And, and their instruments are? So Marcello they... Mogolewski, his main instrument is the clarinet, but he also plays many others. He, he plays the penny whistle. He can make this thing sing. And Cesar Lerner is, is primarily a pianist and accordion player, but also plays uh, percussion. And if you look them up, uh, Mogolevsky and Lerner, or you can look up Klezmer and Buenos Aires, or we did an album together, which is on my website. So we're trying to bring all these elements together to help people, yes, come to the moment. And also, I want to say that I have a lot of ex I have different experiences in Pilates and body work from my dance experience at York University and working with chiropractors um, quite intensely, working with the Olympic team. So the, the technique of the body and the alignment of the body in order to release, I would like to work on that and mm. when we're there. So to do warm-ups that are focused on the breath and the alignment of the body so all the centers can line up. That was always very important because I worked with high-level athletes. and But just to bring all that experience to help together with it, to let go. Because I do believe the body stores everything, doesn't it? It just keeps storing. Yeah. I don't think that ever ends. I think that, of course, as children, we come into this world mainly pre-verbal and our parents put these syllables and consonants and vowels together and that attaches to our somatic experience. But of course, it's only an approximation and, and continually there's this emerging process of trying to connect what we feel with our brains. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I with you. That's why body work I feel is so important because it expands it expands this kind of existential curiosity that we all are, are in and continually yeah. renewing every day when we wake up and try and put ourselves back together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I want to say too that we're planning on on getting scholarships for people to come. So if you're listening, please reach out. There'll be a process to apply and share why you'd like to join us. And all these details are going in, but you'll get a lot more information on this podcast. I have one more question before we wrap up, which I ask everybody is, in your life, what keeps you up at night? What's What keeps me up at night? Yeah. And what do you mean by that? What disturbs me or what keeps Yeah, well, what's not... the thing in the world that that tends to that you really tend to focus on when you when you're I don't know, in your private space and thinking about how you'd love the world to change or what? Well, I think okay, that's an interesting question because at nighttime is when I usually start to love to dance uh -huh. <laughs> and then I stay up all night and then I because I have animals it's always a 6 30 wake up call so dancing keeps you up at night I I love to move at night and because and find you know just explore music and explore expressions and somehow it feels it feels that I'm building something, but I, I don't know what it is yet, <laughs> especially now. Is there a different quality at night? Is there a different quality for you when everyone's sleeping or when it gets late? Is there something about that time that is particular? Yes, because everyone is sleeping. Well, in my case, I usually have a lot of animals, so there's quite a regular <laughs> schedule. So you have to jump in and out of creation work that you're doing to tend to these, the farm or whatever When it did is. you start saving animals? When did that start for you that you started to rescue animals? You know, it's interesting. If I must confess, it was started in Vegas on the creation of Zumanity. I rescued nine dogs and 
I, I struggled in Zumanity because I got hired later and their choreographer, the first choreographer got let go. So I came in late and there were acrobatic acts and dancers and so much to do. It was quite a challenge, Zumanity. As I remember in watching in this Kundalini movie, the wheel, when, where sex is involved, there is always chaos. <laughs> and I can vouch for that. <laughs> humanity. You know, different points of view of what is sensual and what is sexy. And yes, and a man's and a woman's are not necessarily the same. But anyway, so I remember one day I was outside of PetSmart and this lady was a chiropractor and she had 18 dogs. And I told her, okay, I'll. I'll adopt whatever's left. Oh my God. So there were nine dogs left. That was a challenge. And I think it was a sign of my struggles and I couldn't find my truth perhaps in that creative or I was transitioning perhaps you know, it was a different creative team. It was no longer Franco and that took, we had developed such a rhythm that first mm. team. There were very few words spoken. We just mm. knew that we were always mm -hmm. doing a progression. And this was a new director. And I was almost offering material as we did. But that was overwhelming because they were more writers of the complete package. So when I look back, you know, I, I probably didn't serve that I didn't I didn't click into the new rhythm fast enough, which I learned now, I realize now, you know, I can do that because I've done opera and I can go home, sure. and do my homework and come back. And this is it that I can do that. I've done that several times for operas. So that, but then after that, it was Zed, which I loved the process in Tokyo, loved creating Zed. Uh, but I lived right across the road from, I think they were a heroin house that later got busted, but they were selling dogs as a front. And I knew that the dogs were dying, some of them. They uh -huh. wouldn't open till, you know, all hours and they'd stay up till four. They'd open till four in the morning. They, they had since got busted, but I rescued seven dogs met a woman in the store that spoke English and she was Japanese. And I think it was kind of, maybe I had traveled around so much and, you know, it's like Bruce Springsteen said, it's all an illusion, this mm. entertainment. He said, mm -hmm. it's not real. It's like selling air, <laughs> you know, as we go and I think I was searching for the ground. It grounded you. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah, so animals. I needed so animals but did i realize that at the time well i did feel it that i needed grounding and then it just kept going from there and i never i just kept opening the door and i've rescued so many animals <laughs> and i have gone out of my way several times to rescue injured animals so, you know it's very the adventure <laughs> but i'm okay with that i'm okay yes. with that i followed my intuition yeah yes i feel very fortunate people should know that you maintain a, a farm where a lot of these dogs and animals would live and somebody would take care of them when when you're not there and even when you are there and it's this huge heart that you have and i don't know that i've ever met anyone like you that has <laughs> this this well a, a an ease with which and i think it comes through even our conversation today but an ease with which you share a kind of joy and experience and i love your i, I love the image you gave of holding a you know having a small lamp and putting one foot in front of the other and i look forward to creating more with you and creating a space for people to feel safe to be in their bodies and to be in the moment with us. And I look forward to more sunsets with you when we can be together again soon. 
Thank you for coming on, Deborah. <laughs> Thank means you so the much. World to me. Thank you, and look forward to seeing you soon. I have had the pleasure of meeting many of Deborah's rescues. There is one room at her farm where she would sleep surrounded by the myriad dogs she brought home to safety from all around the world. Amazing to hear her talk about how the animals brought her down to earth as she crisscrossed the globe, creating some of the most memorable spectacles on the planet. Remember to check mitchellsmolkin.com if you are interested in joining us in Stockholm this October. We will start posting information very soon and also give you a link where to register to keep updated. Please, please, please share this podcast with your friends if you are enjoying, and don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for being here with me. I remain faithfully yours. Yours.